Good morning, church. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. This morning, we celebrate the resurrection of the Son of God. Jesus has defeated death and conquered the grave. Today's passage teaches us how faith unites us with Christ in his resurrection so we can walk in a newness of life. Christ is risen. He is risen. And Christ wants you to live a resurrected life. Uh, this morning's scripture reading will be from Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ has been raised from the, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass, grass withers, withers, the flower, flower fades, fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Happy Easter, everybody. It is a joy and a privilege. Let's uh, keep your bulletins open. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to sit in this passage and talk about what it means to walk in a newness of life, to live as if a death truly has no more dominion over us. This is a resurrection reality. We hope everyone uh, walks out of here uh, embodying, hopeful, with our eyes and our hearts on the hope that we have from heaven. Uh, we celebrate the baptisms this morning, and you might be wondering, uh, why was Sishan standing right there with a the camera the whole time? <laughs> Uh, doesn't he have a Zoom? Was that what you were wondering? No, he, he does have a Zoom. Uh, but we wanted Sishan to be up there and Ron to do those baptisms because uh, it is a picture of generational discipleship. Uh, too often we don't take moments to really celebrate uh, what is normal in the church of God. That is people coming to know Christ, leading others to Christ, and making disciples of Christ. That is the story of God's faithfulness uh, through the relationship that you are able to see and celebrate together. And we hope that what is normal for the church throughout history and around the world will become more and more normal for us as God uses us to not only embody the resurrection hope that he gives us, but to share that hope with others who do not know Christ personally so that we can be a people and really love one another corporately uh, and participate in his work of loving the city, our neighbors, neighborhoods, and among the nations. So we're going to look at uh, Ephesians 6 this morning. Uh, if you keep, uh, have your, uh, your Bibles, keep them open. 
So people ask, what difference does resurrection really make? Is it that we just come to church early one Sunday a year for a sunrise service and then we get a free breakfast afterwards uh, and we just get to hang out? Is that what Easter is all about? Or are there greater implications for the life of the believer? I'm going to tell you there's greater implications. I want to use an illustration of one of my favorite creatures from the hill country. I love the hill country. I love being in this part of Texas, this part of the United States, this part of the world. And one of my favorite creatures is the red-tailed hawk. You ever seen a hawk soaring? I love me some hawks, except when they're hovering over my backyard and looking at my chickens in ways that make you think they're waiting for dinner. That's not what we like. The red-tailed hawk, it, it has uh, an unbelievable range. Did you know that those things, we, we appreciate them soaring over us, but those things can fly up to 30 to 40 miles an hour. And in, migra in migration, in a migratory season, the red-tailed hawk can actually travel 1,000 miles in a day. Did you know that? Well, there's a story of a red-tailed hawk in the hill country that was captured as a little hawklet. Is that what you call it? A little baby hawk. I don't know what to call it. A little baby hawk. Do, 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 do. I just ruined the service for half of y'all. All right. So this little hawk, the hawklet, was caught. And this man decided that he would keep it for a little entertainment of himself, his neighbors, and people who came out to his ranch. So he tied something around the hawk's talon. And then he tied that. It had a little clip on it. And then he tied that rope, or that little chain thing, to a pole. And the hawk that was designed to soar could only go within five feet of that pole. And for, it was raised that way. They fed it. It got so tame that people were able to come up to that hawk and feed it. And one day, this man who had the hawk that could only go five feet from the pole that it was tethered to on its talon had a family come over. And there was a curious little kid. And this curious little kid went out to see the hawk. And rather than be excited about seeing a hawk, you know what this little boy felt? He felt sadness. Because on his way out there, he had actually seen some of the hawks soaring. He'd seen them hovering. And he looked at this hawk and he realized this hawk is not living everything it's created to live. So he looked around and rather than feeding the bird, he figured out how to set the bird free by undoing the clasp on its talon. And when he realized he figured out how to do that, he got very excited. And he, he undid the talon, and he stood back to watch the hawk soar. And guess what happened? The hawk flapped its wings, but it did not fly. The hawk began to go in circles, but it did not soar. The hawk that had been created to hover, designed to fly even a thousand miles in a day, did not leave the area from which it was freed. Why? Because in his mind, the bird still believed that he was captured even though he had been freed. In the resurrection for the church, I hate to say it, kids. I mean, family. Yeah, kids. <laughs> I hate to say it, but in that story, we would like to see ourselves as the kids that set the birds free. But unfortunately, we're more like the bird that still lives in captivity. If we find ourselves flying in the American church today, it is more like the old space shuttle for NASA. 
and we attach Jesus onto our life like a booster rocket. And we need him to get into the orbit of our specific life purpose or our specific felt need. If I could just get married, and then as soon as we arrive, poof, the booster rocket falls off and we go into the orbit, the atmosphere of our goal. If I could just get a job, Jesus, help me get a job. Then that booster rocket falls off and we're in the orbit of our vocation. If I could just go to this school, if I could just live in this neighborhood, if I could just have these friends, we fly. And then when we get to the atmosphere of our life project, Jesus falls to the ground. We don't soar, we float. And before we know it, our life project becomes the same as every other idol of our heart. Empty, unable to give life, unable to satisfy. You see, church, the resurrection of the Son of God has life-changing implications for you as the people of God. It goes beyond Sunday morning on Easter and goes to absolutely everything you do, everywhere you go, everyone you have contact with for all time, not just till you die, but even after you die. You say, Mitchell, how can I access some of that good stuff? We're going to tell you the God's word answers is through understanding our union with Christ. That we can understand what it means to be baptized with Christ, to be raised with Christ. Then we can walk in a newness of life. This is the centerpiece of the doctrine, if you want, of the passage. If you want to look back at your bulletin, uh, you can look right at the beginning of verse 3. Do you not know all of us have been baptized into Christ? You've been baptized into him. That means this. That by faith, you are so united to Christ that everything that is true of Christ is true of the believer. You are so united to Christ that everything Christ has done is true of you if you believe the word baptism. You, you say, well, uh, what is baptism, Mitchell? Is it just a sprinkling? Have I been sprinkling of, sprinkled of grace? That's what we did this morning. We, we, it's okay to sprinkle in baptism, you know, especially when you got your Easter best on. You don't want to mess that up, right? What we could have done this morning with this humidity is just kind of like grab a napkin and capture the saturation and put it on their heads. But the word baptism, it literally means submersion, to go underneath the water. But Paul is not speaking of water here. He's speaking of a spiritual reality. To be baptized into Christ is to be immersed. It's to be dunked. It's to be saturated. It's to be soaked. It's to be covered. It's to be dripping with the resurrection realities that come through Christ, by Christ, for Christ. That is what union with Christ means. Uh, great theologians like John Murray in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Redemption Applied. He describes union with Christ as the key central doctrine to understanding your salvation. And he has a tremendous few paragraphs that I'll spare you reading. That he talks about union with Christ all the way from before, before creation. Ephesians 1 says that we're in Christ before the foundation of the world. Union with Christ all the way through the state of glorification. That we are in Christ for all eternity. This peace 
of God's amazing grace is something that we're invited to understand when Paul says we are baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death, we're buried with him in the grave, and we're in order that we can be resurrected with Christ. Union with Christ isn't exclusively a discussion that theologians have. It's also one that runs throughout the New Testament. Do you believe it? It's true. Paul says of union with Christ all through his letters in Galatians 2.20 that you died, you were crucified with Christ. In Colossians 3.1, you were raised with Christ. In Romans 6.3, we're talking about being baptized and resurrected in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, your sin was taken in Christ. The righteousness of God given in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you were reconciled to God in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, just to name a few, listen, Ephesians 1, 3, every spiritual blessing from the heavenly places, everyone, are yours in Christ. So understanding union with Christ, it is essential to understanding death no longer having dominion over us. Verse 3 is clear in the what? You are united with Christ. Verse 4 tells us the why. Why are you united in Christ? Look what it says in the end of verse 4. So that you might walk in a newness of life, untethered to the poles of your sin, untethered from the poles of your addiction, moving beyond just using Jesus as a booster rocket for your current life project, setting you in your orbit for your own selfish and self-centered ambitions that will not satisfy you. You're created to soar, and that means you walk in a newness of life. You say, Mitchell, how is that possible? Paul says, I thought you would ask. Because in verse 5, he says it again. You were baptized into Christ so that you could be raised with Christ. Understanding union with Christ is everything for you. And it's an invitation for you to move past your despondency and declare victory. It's an invitation for you to, to, to deal with the anger of your heart, the, the temptation you have to control everything for protection. It's an invitation for you to move past this, past this constant self-defending, such deep insecurity that you feel like you've always got to compare yourself to others. It's an invitation for you to move past defining your life by your circumstance and your life stage. It's an invitation for you to experience abundant life. It's an invitation for you to move beyond hate and division, to move into love and to service. It's an invitation for you to move from the struggles of this life and to truly soar on the, on the gospel winds. This is what it means. You say, Mitchell, what does it look like? What are some implications? Clear. I think I lost. There you go. Look at six to seven. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You want to soar? You must understand that you are dead to sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. You've been set free and created to soar. Now you say, Mitchell, I know I believe this, but I still struggle with sin. I still wrestle with temptation. 
All through scripture, God is gracious to give us illustrations to help us understand the implications of being resurrected in Christ. Uh, in Colossians 1, Paul says this, you have been ripped from the domain of darkness. Like if you can imagine a field where that domain is darkness and in that domain, Satan has authority and Satan tells you you're tied up. Satan tells you you can't fly. Satan tells you that you're addicted. Satan tells you that there's no hope. Satan tells you that nothing can cover your sin. He says, you've been ripped from the domain of darkness and taken across a road and transplanted, rooted in the soil of God's grace. Except he calls it the kingdom of God's beloved son through whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. This imagery of Paul is picked up by men like D.L. Moody who use this illustration to help Christians understand the implications of our salvation. That is to be united with Christ even in his resurrection is to be moved across the road, so to speak, into another field. And we have trouble soaring. We have trouble serving uh, uh, in the name of Christ because we still hear the voice of the enemy. You can't fly. We hear the voice of the enemy. You're not lovable. We hear the voice of the enemy. You're nothing more than the sum total of your sins. You can't be forgiven. We hear the voice of the enemy. You're not worth anything. Even though we're on the other side of the road, even though we're in another field, even though we've been ripped from the domain of darkness, we don't listen to the voice of God's beloved son. You're forgiven. You're freed. You're loved. Not because of what you do, but because of what I've done. You are set on a course that is far greater than your own personal life project and ambition. I have created good works for you since before the foundation of the world that gives you a deep sense of meaning and mission. You, in Christ, have a secure identity. You don't need to find tune and fine comb your identity to switch in and out of social media platforms and communities. You have a secure identity in Christ. You don't need your work for identity. You don't need your zip code for identity. You don't need your friend group for identity. You don't need your status, success for your identity. You are new in Christ. The voice of the Father through the Son says, you, you're a part of my family. You are children of mine. You are loved, secure, adopted, sealed with my spirit. You see, the voice of our true identity in the field of the kingdom of God's beloved son, that's the voice we need to hear. You're dead to sin. You know, I read this week, somebody said, uh, you know what the first thing that you do, the first thing that you do when you become a Christian, you know what it is? just to make this imagery more real. You attend your own funeral. You stand at the grave of your old self. You're dead to the domain of darkness. You're dead to sin and you walk away in a newness of Christ. That's the second implication that we see in verses eight to nine. Death no longer has dominion. Look at verses eight to nine. I love these verses. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ, 
And we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Our life has been grabbed from the grip of the grave and been restored by grace through faith alone. Faith alone. This has been the argument of Paul for the first five chapters of Romans. That we're justified, we're made right by faith alone. And that the fruit of that is that we're free to walk in a newness of life, understanding that death no longer has dominion. So when you hear the voice of the enemy calling out to you, saying you are whatever the worst sin is you've done, that's a lie straight from the pit of hell. When you hear a voice that is speaking out condemnation to you, then you can claim Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. A voice of condemnation is a lie straight from the dominion of the enemy. When you feel you're unlovable, when you feel that you're not worth any value, you can condemn that voice and hold to the voice of the Lord who says there's nothing that can separate you from my love. There is nothing in all creation. There's no height, no depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor principalities, nor anything that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When you're tempted to listen to that voice of despair that life just can't get better, there's no breaking the cycle of darkness in your soul, then you can understand that Jesus has ripped out of darkness light and hope. He's ripped from death life. And he's making all things new right now. That what the enemy intends for evil, he says he's working for good. That what the enemy is using to try to discourage you, he's using it for your good and his glory. That's the language of scripture. Right now, present tense, Revelation 21.6, Jesus is on the throne. What's he doing? Behold, I am making all things new. That's the voice of the domain of our king, the kingdom of God's beloved son. We have a hard time grasping what it looks like to really have life taken from death. Let me give you another illustration. It's from a true crime book. A lot of people are in true crimes. This one's kind of unique. It's called The Feather Thief. It's by a guy named Kurt Wallace Johnson. And it's ultimately a story about this extremely gifted musician who was passionate about fly tying. He loved tying flies. And I don't mean like tying up red-tailed hawks. He didn't catch flies and tie them. He took hooks and he tied them like flies so he could go fly fishing. For non-fishermen, they're like, what does that mean to fly ties? He was so passionate about it, he's called the feather thief because this savant in music, extremely gifted, he decided to steal feathers from the British National Museum of extinct birds, extinct birds from all over the world. He snuck in, the security is not very high, and he stole a bunch of feathers so that he could have the most exclusive flies in the world. Now, throughout the story, as in The Feather Thief, you get a history of fishing. And this guy is educating you. Johnson, apparently, my wife has read this book and she's told me all about it. And I have read it uh, virtually because two have become one flesh in Christ. So, I mean, like for weeks, she's telling me every story. Car rides. Okay, so this, and I actually read this part, all right? 
It's the beginning of chapter 5. In the history of fishing, he talks about hooks being found as early as 200 B.C. through a, uh, a, a, a battle of World War I, 1915, uh, on the coast of Macedonia. This is a fascinating story. He tells this story of soldiers that are on the south side of Macedonia, and they're right beside a cemetery. And their supply ship had been torpedoed. They were famished, and there were thousands of them. In a random stray missile, it went and it hit a tomb that was right beside them. Uh, a, a doctor, an anthropologist who's with him, I don't know why, I don't ask questions. He goes into the tomb to look at the grave, and there's a body in there that they eventually would realize was from 200 B.C. And in the fist of this corpse were five bra brass fishing hooks. And the fascinated sociologist looked at death and decay and he thought about the famished army that was out there, and he thought, I wonder if we can bring life from this grave. And he took the hooks from the grip of the, the corpse, and he took them out to the uh, leaders of the men, and they went to a nearby river that was less than half a mile away, and they began fishing with these hooks. And they caught thousands of wild carp. And this guy goes into such detail that they caught 14-pound carps from hooks that were taken from the hands of a corpse that had been gone for centuries, that literally life was taken out of the tomb to feed a famished people, that they thought that they had all the military power they need, they thought they had all the might, they thought they had all the provision, but in the end, they were cut off and getting ready to die. And if it wasn't for the hooks that were taken from the hands of the corpse in the grave, they would have died. But God, in his providence, brought life from that tomb. Friends, that's what Easter is about. From the grip of the grave, God reached in and he grabs more than hooks for your hearts to feed your famished souls. He grabs eternal life through union with Christ. All of Christ's victory is yours in Christ. All of Christ's newness of life, it's yours in Christ. All of the forgiveness he offers, it's yours in Christ. All of the power of sin that was lost in the tomb is yours in Christ. You are children of God. There's nothing you can do about it. You're victorious through God. You need to learn to live in it. And you've got to embrace who you are by faith because God has designed you to soar. Stop settling for being tethered to the anchors and the false gods of our world and live your identity in Christ. As we close, uh, I have a little portion in here about being positionally perfect in verse 10. Uh, it's unbelievable the, the, the reality that we have. Just real quick, look at 10. Positionally, you're secure so that in our sanctification, we can endure. For the death Christ died, he died to sin once and for all. The life he lives, he lives to God, verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, here's the gospel. Positionally, when we're one with Christ, 
You are a child of God. The penalty of sin has been paid. God no longer looks at you and says you need to pay for sin more. It's all paid. The power of sin is lost in the believer so that the practice of the believer can be one of preaching the gospel to yourself. I can't end, as we close here, I can't end without reading uh, this quick thing for, from John Scott. Callan and the band are going to come up here. This is what John Stott says at the end of his commentary on Romans 6. I contextualize talking about how union with Christ sets us to store, soar in life and our sanctification. This is, these are John Stott's words. We should constantly be reminding ourselves of who we are, learning to talk to ourselves and ask ourselves questions. Don't you know? Don't you know the meaning of conversion and baptism? Don't you know that you've been united with Christ in his death? You're united with Christ in his resurrection. Don't you know that you've been enslaved to God, to, uh, to God in his service? Don't you know these things? Don't you know who you are? We must go on pressing ourselves with such question until the reply of our hearts is yes. I do know who I am. I'm a new person in Christ. And by the grace of God, I shall live accordingly. The resurrection reality is ours in Christ. And this is why he concludes. On May 28th in 1972, the Duke of Windsor, uh, Stott was British, the uncrowned king, Edward VIII, uh, he died in Paris. That same evening, a television program rehearsed the main events of his life. Extracts from earlier films were shown in which uh, he answered questions about his upbringing. He was brief, uh, his, his abdication, but he recalled his boyhood as a Prince of Wales. Listen, and he said, the Duke said, my father, King George, was a strict disciplinarian. And sometimes when I had done something wrong, he would admonish me saying, my dear boy, you must always remember who you are. My dear boy, you must always remember who you are. It's my conviction that our Heavenly Father says the same thing to us every day. My dear child, you must remember who you are. You must remember you're a child of the King. You must remember you've been united to Christ. You must remember you've been set free from the power of sin. You must remember the penalty of sin has been paid for and that death no longer has dominion and that you can walk in a newness of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the power, the promise that death no longer has dominion. And we pray that your spirit would make this reality true for us. Lord, for those who are feeling trapped in Satan's field and hearing his voice, we pray that you would give them the ears to hear who they are in you. For those who feel tethered to the pole of sin, the idolatry of our hearts, we ask that you would help them by the power of your spirit to understand they're set free to soar beyond a life project where they're just using you for their own purposes. Lord, help us to be a people who truly walk in a newness of life. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.